everybody. Welcome back. It's Tanya with Recovering Church Girls. And I know I say this every time, and I'm sure I even say this part every time, but I'm really, really excited for this conversation. I think I've been waiting to have this talk for, let's see, Saul, what do you say? That was like four months, something like that? <laughs> uh, it was October, beginning of October, I think, right? So well, yeah, it, it, there we it's go. been a while. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. That's for sure. So I have with me today, Saul Orwell, and there's a few things that I think you should know about him. One is that he is the founder of examine.com, which is a really great resource. And I'm hoping he'll tell us a little bit about that. But also what I really, really enjoy is just kind of his philosophy and his personality and his approach to human beings in community together. And to that end, he's the mastermind behind the great cookie off, which this is the last year, and then also Correct. bringing people together for dinner events. So I, there's all sorts of things we need to explain about that and that I want to hear more of. Um, and in the meantime, I want you to be able to get a chance to say hi. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. And I'm, and I'm ready to <laughs> talk endlessly and too much and too fast, but that's who I am. Hey, well, this this is perfect. You were in the exact right place um, because I also talk endlessly and talk fast. So I oh, have a question much. for you. When we first yeah. met um, at a, a speaking event and we had a few mutual friends in common, but we had not yet met in person um, until October. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned something about recovering church girls and the group that we were in all had this almost like visceral reaction and people turned and looked at you and there was this immediate thing of like, Oh, you're going to want to talk to him. What was that all about? What was your reaction <laughs> in that conversation? And how are we here now? Uh, I, I gotta be honest. I had not realized that people had turned around and looked at me. I think there's a <laughs> level of obtuseness that I walk around with in life and I had no idea. Um, but I think part of it was, or a, a big part of it is that um, there's this weird level of uh, shame that we have about stuff that's happened in our lives. And uh, internally, uh, I have a motto, which I run by that, that basically says no one cares. And, and what I mean by that, and a lot of people see that as a negative, but it doesn't. To me, it's like people are all living in their lives. And no matter what you do, no one really cares in the context of that they're judging you for it, that they're holding it against you. Um, and so to that end, I have talked quite openly about my own upbringing. I, I was quite the devout Muslim. Um, I was married actually to an atheist uh, uh, Caucasian lady, uh, a vegetarian, but like I ate meat. She did not eat meat. She drank alcohol. I did not drink alcohol. Uh, but it didn't matter to me because she was doing her life. I was doing my life. And as long as we got to get, uh, got along with each other, that was fine. So I've been very honest and open about my experience of being a devout Muslim and transitioning into someone who doesn't really uh, per se care about religion for myself. I mean, if it works for you, that's awesome. Um, and I feel maybe that's why people looked at me because I've never shied away from it. I've never been ashamed from it. Uh, and what's awesome about that is because I've never hidden it, because I've never treated, treated it as anything uh, to hide, um, I've never, ever, ever had anyone say anything bad about it to me. At most, maybe some kind of passing comment about being a Muslim and how Islam is the devil and all that kind of stuff, and that's a whole <laughs> separate conversation. Uh, but just by kind of owning it, no one's ever been able to say anything bad about it. So maybe that's why people turn around and, and stared so conspicuously at me, even though they were doing it in a way that I never even uh, noticed along the, along the way. 
That's awesome. I, I love it. That makes me even more excited to talk about this because I could not agree with you more in the idea of so much of what we've experienced, we tend to internalize and that's the track that's playing in our head more so than any attention someone else might be giving us or not. Um, so that definitely rings true for, I think, a lot of the people's experience that you know, we've worked with already. Uh, so with that being yeah, I mean, said... If, if I can cut in actually for a second. Like, oh, please, what yeah. am I, so I... I didn't fully appreciate this, that, you know, empathy is a skill that we uh, develop and that we learn. But I always think about like, you know, if I'm going down the street and let's say there's someone just hollering and yelling um, and making a huge scene, right? Like you see this and you observe and you're like, okay, that person's kind of nuts. So, you know, ooh, what is going on with this person? But at least for me, if you were to ask me 45 minutes later, what did that person look like? I will barely remember any details about them right? Like it won't be imprinted in my head. So it's to that end that we get so embarrassed around other people. We think, ooh, we're going to make a scene and everyone's going to remember us, but no one really remembers. They'll maybe remember the action. They might remember kind of the experience, but they rarely remember that it was you specifically that did it. And it's one of those liberating things when you realize that when, again, when I say no one cares, it's not a bad thing. It's just like live your life and no one's really going to be tracking you and writing every single thing you do and holding it against you. So that's kind of just to explain, elaborate a little bit more on what I meant by no one cares. Yeah, I love that. And I will say, because um, I was teasing you before we get started or we got started, <laughs> that um, I signed up for your mailing list for your uh email newsletter and I have read every single email and I can't say I do that for many people by the way <laughs> but you know thank you I'm honored well, some people are tracking uh, just in the sense of what you're sharing. Um, so I'm saying that playfully only because what I love about what you've created with your newsletter and you're, you're totally upfront about it of saying like, this is my place for me to think out loud and to talk and to engage and to pontificate about whatever it is that is coming up for me right now. And I think that even that, that kind of freedom and self-expression, there are so many people that are holding themselves back from living that kind of intentionality and it's so refreshing and that's exactly why I've read every single one is because I, I do feel that kind of camaraderie and being able to you know get a, a different sense of things uh, just from being able to read those emails so it's been a lot of fun <laughs> uh, awesome uh, you know what it, it's funny you mentioned I think there's uh, two things that come out of it uh, one almost from a sociological perspective back in the day uh, depending on whatever neighborhood you lived in, the most influential person had a huge impact on you, right? If the most powerful, influential person didn't like you, that was a big problem for you. If they did like you, that was a huge boon for you. But what the internet has done is it's broken all those boundaries. And we used to worry so much about this one or two people who had uh, a great amount of influence on our lives, but that doesn't happen anymore, right? You can be successful and Oprah Winfrey can think you're the worst person. Tim Ferriss can think you're the trashiest human being in the world. And you can still be really, really successful because they don't really control the audience. Mm -hmm. And I found that we have this desire to be uh, well-liked or kind of appeal to ABCD. But what I've been very, very particular about is like, this is how I live my life. You don't need to like it. You don't need to appreciate it. You don't need to know. You don't even need to like how I speak. And it's not even when I say like, I don't mean in an animosity kind of sense. I don't mean like a personal dislike. But for example, I don't take many things seriously. And if you're a very serious individual, that's okay. 
and we may not get along and that's okay. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. So, you know, when you talk about the liberation, I found that like embracing my weird quirks, my weird peculiarities. And if you don't like it, you know, again, kind of shrugging uh, has been definitely one of the more uh, empowering things I've been able to um, kind of really hold on to tightly in the past few years. I love that. And it's, it's so interesting because I'm thinking about this recovery process, you know, of coming out of kind of this um, programming, if you will, that comes in a lot of organized religious type of environments. And especially when it relates to women in having that patriarchal bend, we're supposed to be really well behaved and we're supposed to want everyone to like us and we're supposed to this and we're supposed to that. And it becomes kind of this track that's running all the time. And until we bring awareness to it, and can choose to think differently, we're still seeking for that approval in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not to say that, you know, it's only women that are doing this, but definitely more women than men that I know are more about the people seeking or the people uh, people pleasing and the approval seeking, you know, kind of comes almost ingrained with us, it feels like right now. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's actually funny, right? So especially in the entrepreneur space, you definitely come across a bunch of people that are very selfish, that are very self-entitled, they're very self-conceited, you know, the world kind of evolves around them. But by and by, I would say a large proportion of human beings are definitely seeking approval from the external, right? Mm-hmm. They want their parents to like them more. They want their friends. They want to be popular. You know, you want to be internet famous. You know, we've heard of people, uh, there was that a couple like maybe a year ago where the guy uh, had his girlfriend or wife shoot him uh, through a, uh, with a sorry with a yellow pages book in the way but the book wasn't thick enough or they shot wow. the gun too close and he, sh- and he got killed um all just so he could get some uh fame or you get some attention so um i 100 percent agree with you and, and it's almost ridiculous to say this but i would actually recommend most more people be selfish in their lives and selfish doesn't mean only thinking about yourself but selfish just means like hey is this something i really want to do or am i just doing this to make someone else happy Right. If anything, I would say more and more entrepreneurs I've met were like, oh, I was going to become a lawyer. I was, I, just, I was hanging out with a friend, and he was originally doing a degree in philosophy. And it totally didn't work out for him, and he has a marketing agency now that's doing actually really, really well. But, um, you know, that was his expectations. I had expectations. I'd become a doctor. Um, an engineering undergrad, I'd eventually become a doctor. And then eventually, you're like, man, why am I doing this? If I'm not enjoying it, like, I don't care if my parents like it. Like, how does that matter? They're not the ones living this life, so. Uh, I am 100% in agreement with about like, you got to live your own life. You can't worry about other people. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how that plays into religion. Can you tell me a little bit about your own upbringing and, you know, what did it look like for you in the context of, you know, if you would have told yourself 20 years ago or 30 years ago, um, you know, that you were holding to these values and living out a life that was based on what matters to you as opposed to the society or the culture or the religious beliefs, what what would you have said in that moment? Yeah, wow, no kidding. Uh, so just a little bit of background. So um, I am ethnically Kashmiri, which is what Pakistan and India keep fighting their damn wars over. Um, I was born in Pakistan. Um, at the age of two, we moved to Saudi Arabia. Between the ages of seven and nine, I lived in Japan. Uh, we then went back to Saudi Arabia. I did my eighth grade in Houston, and then we immigrated to Canada, which is where I did my high school, and then I did uh, engineering in Toronto before I kind of started gallivanting around the globe. So, As if you weren't already gallivanting around the globe. <laughs> it, yes, it was definitely an accelerated gallivant, 
gallivantation. I don't know what that, and let's, let's say that word exists. Uh, and so I was definitely exposed to a lot of cultures. I remember being confused originally when we went to Japan that I couldn't have uh, pork. Like, because Saudi Arabia had no pork, it was never an idea that I could not have pork. And I was like, okay, cool, you know, I can live with it. Um, and to me, religious is a very personal kind of thing. So, and when I say personal, I mean, it's something that I had to constantly question for myself being like, does this work for me? Does this fit for me? And until my mid twenties, it did like it in a good way. It did provide structure. It did provide some semblance of, let's say morality. Uh, if it's innate or not, that's a whole different conversation. Uh, <laughs> but eventually what happened for me that uh, religion fell apart for me was um, so there's a big component, at least that I was brought up is that, you know, don't judge other people. You don't know what they're going through. Um, it's for God to judge and it's not for you to judge, which I fully embrace. Um, like, you know, even as a Muslim, I was very pro gay marriage because it's like, Hey man, if two people want to do it, why do you care? Like pretty much the gayest thing you can do is worry about two guys being gay together. Like that's in my opinion, the single gayest thing you can do. So it's just like, you know, they're living their life. Why do you care? Why is it a bother for you? But eventually the reason religion did not work for me was I couldn't get over the idea that if I ate pork or let's say I was gay, um, or I happen to be, you know, was, um, and you know, I die and I go to judgment and God's like, nah, you ate pork, you go to hell. Like to me, that was so illogical because the mora- there's nothing moral or immoral in itself about being in a loving relationship, about mm-hmm. eating pork, about drinking alcohol, all, all that kinds of stuff. Right. I feel like intention matters a lot more. Actions matter a lot more than, you know, Oh, I just did this thing that someone's decided it's not okay. That's kind of how I lost my religion, but to that end, and this is almost like a, a testament of society, I think we just care way too much about what other people are doing. At the end of the day, if you're doing something that's not directly impacting someone, arguably even indirectly, um, and the reason I mentioned indirectly is, you know, uh, drugs can possibly have a, a, load, a load bearing on public health systems, all that kind of stuff, get into the, you know, the minutiae of that even. But um, as long as it's not hurting somebody, like, why do you care what someone else is doing? Right. As long as they're not espousing violence against you, it's none of your business. So um, it, it, it's funny, like, even though I was relatively devout, and I'm absolutely not now, uh, in a lot of ways, I do have sympathy for, or not, I have a lot of empathy for people who are religious, who are just kind of living their lives and are trying to convince someone else to do, you know, what they think is correct. Um, I think society as a whole would be a lot better. Mm-hmm. If we lived in that way, and if you're religious or if you're not religious, like I don't even think any of that matters. Um, and I, and if anything, I would say that's the bigger problem. Be it uh, evangelicals, be it Muslims, be it even atheists, or kind of like trying to ram their belief system down your throat. Mm-hmm. That's just when you're like, yo, man, like what is wrong with you? Just you do you. I'm not trying to change you. Why? What makes you? Like I never understood this this feeling of unsolicited advice. Like I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're doing. Why are you telling me what to do? Um, like, I, for example, and this is even a non-religious, but it's the same kind of idea. Um, I have a genetic disease, so I get this, uh, my joints break easily, so I've had six uh, major surgeries. So one of them was a shoulder surgery, and I was at the gym, and I was doing stuff with one arm, and this random guy came up to me, and he was like, hey, man, you shouldn't do that. It's really bad for you. And, and like, multiple thoughts went in my head. I'm like, one, first of all, I have access to literally the best coaches and doctors in the world and if they said it's okay who the hell are you to tell me that <laughs> secondly by no means am i any kind of like muscular person but this guy was incredibly out of shape and i'm like what what compels you to come to me to tell me how to live my life when i seem to be doing okay and you seem to be doing okay but like what do you want to come say 
So I remember I kind of like gave him the frown and I'm like, yeah, you can leave now. And he was like, what's going on? But like, <laughs> I, I, obviously, you know, I have this dickish personality of me going on. Like, all right, I, I've had enough of this. But um, sorry, I, I don't know if I even meandered and I likely did meander. But uh, that's kind of like my experience with religion was like, it was good for me uh, until it no longer fit. Right. And if it fits for you, that's awesome. And if it doesn't, that's completely fine too. And if we can be okay with that, I think, you know, everything would be a lot, lot better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for the record, you never have to apologize about meandering because we are all about meandering and rabbit holes and all sorts of things like that. Because I feel okay. like Oof. that's where the fun stuff really, you know, it's where we, we get to find the deeper truth. So I'm all about that. So I have a question. Well, you that is, okay. Sorry, <laughs> yes, that, that could open us up, right? <laughs> yeah. You mentioned this idea about uh, the religious experience being a personal one and that it served mm-hmm. you really well up until, you know, the time it didn't in, the, in your 20s or so. The environment that you had with your family, was the culture such that it was still a personal thing or was it a family thing? Like, for example, for me, I grew up in the church. You know, I don't remember a Sunday mm-hmm. or a Wednesday that I wasn't, you know, where I was supposed to be, kind of air quoting that idea, because it was part of our family's identity. You, you mentioned this idea of a, a personal journey, yet even mm. in your youth, did you have that kind of freedom as as a kid to choose? Uh, excellent uh, point. Um so Islam is a little bit more uh, disorganized. Um, you know, there's no like official clergy or any kind of like, uh, I don't want to say ruling class, but like organized religion. So in some ways, um, I had a lot more independence. Like if I wanted to pray, I was praying. So in Saudi Arabia, we go to Friday prayers, like Friday is equivalent of Sunday um, in Islam. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad and I would go there and we'd sit and we'd pray. And that, was, that would be the extent of it. Uh, part of it was the sermon was in Arabic, so we didn't really know what was going on. So we kind of almost skipped the sermon part. And the prayer itself is like five minutes long. So the entire thing would be maybe 15, 20 minutes of the day, and that was it. Right? There was no uh, social gatherings around religion. There was none of those components. So um, in some ways, it was, let's say, foisted upon me. Uh, would I have been a Muslim without my parents? Obviously, I was definitely leaning towards a, a heavy no. But it wasn't as, let's say, pervasive in our day-to-day. So the other part of it, though, is Islam has uh, five prayers a day. There's one that's before sunrise, so we can ignore that. And there's one after sunset, so we can ignore that. Um, And there's like three prayers during the course of the day. So we never interrupted school for any of them. Um, If it was a weekend, or what would happen is all the shops would close during prayer time in Saudi Arabia. But it's not like you'd be out except for maybe one of them. Um, And if it was prayer time, it wasn't like we would then rush to the mosque to get our prayer on. So it's interesting you you say that because I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, it was something that was definitely intertwined in my life, but there was a huge component of just doing it on your own. My parents were like, hey, did you pray yet? Oh, you know, I'm keeping an eye on you. I would just kind of do it. Now, I don't know if it was out of familial duty, uh, if it was out of religious duty, if it was out of like, oh, I think this is the right thing to do. uh, I would likely say it was obviously a combination of all three. But even after I went to university, um, and it's actually funny, as an example of university, um, and kind of me being what I am, uh, my parents originally envisioned me going, in, like I had to stay in residence, um, envisioned me going into an all-male residence, but I just picked the, co- co- uh, the co-ed one because I was like, why not? Um, and so I lived the co-ed, and they thought that was kind of nuts, but whatever. 
And I was still praying, even though they weren't around. They weren't asking me about it. Like, my parents were living in Europe at this time. I was in Canada, so we were quite uh, far, and I've never been one to, you know, get on phone calls or stay in touch very well. Just definitely a weakness of mine. Um, but I was still doing it because it felt right to me. It felt good mm-hmm. to me. So uh, I would say it's a mixture of definitely there was a dogma growing up, but it was definitely something that uh, connected for me on uh, on a personal level. I, I would say that even going to Mecca and, and doing like, there's two kinds of pilgrimage, uh, doing like the smaller one, there was definitely a sense of oneness that uh, was more because I was present than, you know, oh, my mm-hmm. parents say this is the right thing that has to be true. So right. that's kind of my opinion on that. Okay. Yeah. I love that idea. And I think, um, I love that you mentioned Mecca because I think that one of the things you know, it just it reminded me the first time that I went to church that wasn't required, you know, cause I went to a Christian university. So mm-hmm. talk about, you know, the evangelical Ooh, type right. of thing. Um, it was a charismatic evangelical university and I was a resident advisor, which in a lot of university Ooh. settings, it means that, you know, either you're getting the scholarship and that's why you're doing it. Or maybe, you know, you might be a little bit more of a nerdy personality, um, in, mm-hmm my setting, it was, it was actually all about the leadership. It was an eliteness type of a thing because you have to apply, you have to be selected. You have to go through these, you know, really intense trainings, including a uh, physical obstacle course type of thing, which was really just, you know, it was for team bonding, but it was brutal. And I was covered in mud and it was a ton of fun. And I climbed up the wall and all the things, but what I was actually getting to, even in that university structure, not only were we still required to go to church on the weekends, we also had chapel at least twice a week. Uh, We had, um, what do we want to call them, devotions with our individual wings, Uh, you know, as far as like our halls and that type of thing. Each wing had an RA and a chaplain. So, I mean, we had had every which direction covered (laughs) in terms of... Oh, no kidding. Yeah, the, not only the time set aside, but then also the expectation. So all of that to say, I remember sitting next to the guy that I was dating in summer and we'd chosen to go to church and it was like, wait, I don't actually have to be here. This is the first mm-hmm. time I can ever remember, you know, and I'm 20 something years old being at church because I chose it instead of having it be required for me. Um, so I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned your own university experience. It's really interesting. And how long did you continue to go to church then without the requirement of it? A good, probably 10, maybe 15 years after that. It wasn't until... a while. Yeah, it wasn't until maybe about three or four years ago that I stopped going. Which is, yeah, that's a very interesting... interesting, It's it's been fascinating to watch. And I had this huge epiphany this week as I was working through, uh, you know, just some of these deeper, darker, twistier things as I'm working on the book. Right. I'm finding all sorts of, you know, things that I thought that I had already worked through and um, realized that it was actually due to the way that my second marriage ended is what became the catalyst for me to leave the church. So in some way, I actually owe my second husband a, a huge gratitude for the situation being what it was, um, that kind of opened my eyes to things that were in play that I hadn't seen before. So that's an interesting. Uh, So there was like a singular moment that was almost like a switch for you to be like, all right, this is now going to be in my past. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the idea, um, I, I'm, 
stumbling only because uh, we did have a very rocky end and it ended with uh, a piece of being a paper being signed with the attorneys that basically said, you know, we'll have nothing to do with each other ever. Um, right. So I just have to be careful in what I say and how I say it. <laughs> Fair um, enough. But the, uh, the conversation was really, it came down to meeting with the pastor that I had been a member of this congregation for 10 years. Um, he'd been incredibly helpful in the uh, separation and, and divorce from my kid's dad and was just a, a huge ally for both of us, you know, helping us trying to navigate and what's best for the kids and, you know, all those types of things. And we're in right. that office and um, husband number two has painted this picture that I am choosing my business over our blended family. And the pastor said something along the lines of, if God were asking you to choose between the business and the family, what would you do? And I had this like righteous indignation just boiling inside of me, just this idea mm -hmm. of, you know, I, I felt so aligned with what I was doing that I was in exactly where I needed to be. And then I really felt, um, you know, like I was in the flow in, in that idea of, I know who I am. I know what I'm here for. I'm living out my purpose. And for you to assume that, you know, differently tells me that you don't really value my own interpretation of my relationship with God and right. that I'm supposed to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, not to mention the idea of the financial, you know, requirements that that the uh, ex-husband had set out for things. So it just, it was all sorts of messed up. Um, but yeah. Oh, right. Which goes back to expectations of other people on you instead of your own expectations for yourself. Exactly. Which is something I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned this idea of, you know, if we could find our ways and probably create is a better way to explain that within our communities that we can live in such a way to truly give each other that freedom of individual expression, of individual beliefs, whether it's faith or politics or whatever, anything, you know, trying to find that, that grace for each other. You mentioned specifically the idea of evangelicals. And I wanted to know if you had any experience with the evangelical church uh, it, at any point in time growing up or even with the, the followers of that line of thinking and how that impacted you, if it did. Uh. Yeah, so there's actually one thing I wanted to actually rewind on. Um, so you had mentioned that there was like that epiphanous moment where you're like, okay, maybe religion is not for me. Um, I don't know if I'm more atypical and I would almost lean towards from my friends who I've talked to, I am. But mine was actually very not epiphanous. It was just a gradual shift. Um, I remember the first time I had alcohol. I remember the first time I had pepperoni. Um, I grew up basically in, and I practiced not having premarital sex. Um, for me, it was just bit by bit. It just chipped away at me. And, and it's interesting how some people go like, it just snaps and they're like, whoa, okay, this is not for me. Whereas for other people, you know, you just kind of look back five years after and you're like, oh, okay, that's, um, that's that not who I was anymore. Yeah. Like I just, oh, wow. Okay. It was a step at a time, step at a time. It wasn't like, boom, I just busted through this wall. It was like, oh, okay. I took 10 steps here, 10 steps here. And wow, now I'm like 10 miles away from where I was originally. And, and I always find that into because some people think that there's a right way or a wrong way to leave religion. And first of all, it obviously has to be an internal thing. It's not something you, you feel like you're, you have to for someone else. But um, it's interesting that the, the, you can end up at the same uh, destination, but the journey can be so variant for every uh, single individual. Um, in regards to uh, evangelicals, so 
When I lived in Japan for two years, I actually uh, went to a Catholic school. It was St. Joseph International School. And uh, I remember I was always Okay, so hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Because that's fascinating. I just want to, like, make sure I'm really getting that. So as a Muslim, you're attending a Catholic school. Correct. That's really interesting. (laughs) Uh, you know what? I, I guess I never really considered that. So in, in Saudi Arabia, I always went, there was a specific American school. There was no like religion at all, literally 0% Islam. In fact, I would say most people were not Islam or, or Muslims. Um, and so for me, going to this Catholic school wasn't as different as you'd imagine. It's not like, ooh, we replaced Islam with another religion. It was like, ooh, we now have a, a religious studies class. And I remember, and, and the reason I was mentioning I was a studious kid was we had to do uh, animals from Noah's Ark. And uh, I was assigned an ostrich. And I remember just li- afterwards being like, why the hell did I get the biggest animal? Like, what is this garbage? <laughs> and I ended up doing making only one ostrich instead of two. <laughs> so I got a D plus or a D minus in religion. <laughs> that was like our one religion class. Because they're like, what did you do? Like, you only brought one ostrich. I'm like, wait, well, I don't know. I have to have two. I was just like, ah, I got tired. It's too much effort. Um, so... I was kind of exposed to uh, Catholicism that way. And when we moved to originally the States, we were in Houston. And uh, I went to basically like a Latino middle school. And there was a lot of Catholicism there. And it was fascinating seeing these kids trying to balance the expectations of their parents. Because this is like, you know, like a Mexican Catholicism, which is very like, you know, no premarital sex, no this, no this. When they were living lives that were very, very incongruent Right. Uh, with that approach. Um, and on the flip side, as my own like personal, like let's say audience has grown in the entrepreneurship space, there's definitely, I've come across more and more uh, very religious people. And what's been interesting, just kind of comparing and contrasting the, the three sets of, you know, even I wouldn't say evangelicals, but like devout Christians that I've come across, um, even in, especially in the entrepreneur space, I found that it's either they kind of are always talking about it and in some ways they're maybe pushing it on you in some ways they're not and then there's the other half who i would have had no idea they were devout christians uh unless you know a very specific conversation came up and they mentioned it uh about them so overall i've never really had let's say a big negative experience especially in japan i was more just confounded by it all right Mm -hmm. like remember we had to go to church i think once every three months or something i remember there was um uh, ooh, what are you? I'm totally blanking. What do you call it when you eat the bread? Communion. Uh, starts with this communion. Yes. So there's communion, and I was exempt from it, and I didn't understand why. Um, <laughs> and like you had to wear the girls had to wear skirts that were above their knee length. Uh, and my sister and in, in, in Islam, when you're post uh, pubescent, uh, you're supposed to be uh, what's called um, modest. So guys and girls are not supposed to be exposing above their knee. And so there's this entire battle that happened in the school with my sister refusing to wear a short skirt, but they're like, no, we're a Catholic school. We need to have it. It was That's this entire, like, and I never really understood any of it. I have to admit, it goes back to me being very obtuse, kind of like, you know, our, uh, our original meeting. I never really understood it. And, and now looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, some of this was kind of inane. But I, I would almost say that even though all this stuff was happening and now, you know, you know, sometimes you, especially as an adult, you look back and you're like, wow, people really mean to me as a kid or wow, they said some really nasty things. I have always been so almost living in a bubble that any of this religious stuff, be it uh, Catholic or Islam, um, you know, I married this uh, Caucasian redhead. 
Uh, she was not a Muslim. Definitely some people were very unimpressed and very unhappy with it. But I gave such little fucks for what other people were doing or what other people were thinking that I would almost say that it never really impacted me that much. Like I was religious cool. I'm not religious cool. It doesn't really matter. And, and that's kind of how I've skated through through life, essentially. Wow. That's awesome. Oblivious. Uh, oblivious. I now realize I live a very oblivious life, but I think I'm okay with that. But it seems to me that it's not, it's not oblivious in the sense of ignorance. It's oblivious by choice. Like you're just, you're focused on what you're focused on and the rest of it, you just let slide off your back. At least that's yeah, how I, mean, I that's see the it ideal from this way. I, I think I've eventually evolved into that. I think originally I was just straight up oblivious. <laughs> but now, I mean, you know, especially when uh, like you've tasted a little bit of uh, success and you've been in positions where let's say people are trying to use you and whatnot. And that's mm. like, this is both true with and external to religion. Like, you know, we mentioned the, the me bringing uh, the cookie off of me bringing people together, right? Like through that, for example, I've met a lot of well-regarded individuals and then people are always trying to message me trying to get a hold of them and they're always trying you know like that kind mm-hmm. of stuff as i think made me evolve into where i'm like yo i don't really care what you want they're not going to want it and i'm not just here for you so um, right. i think that's definitely been more developed but i guess it was nascent in, inside me from the start that makes a lot of sense and i wonder you know was there anything that you can point to within either your upbringing or just, you know, kind of your personal makeup that came before this idea of reaching that level of success and kind of being this, you know, reluctant gatekeeper in the sense of saying, no, I'm not going to be the gatekeeper. Was there anything in you that helped further that zero fucks given type of mantra? Uh, I I would say if there's any any uh, two words that describe me individually one by one, uh, one of them would be relentless. Like when I want something, I'll, I'll go after it. Uh, and the other thing is independent. Mm. Um, you know, I am an accidental entrepreneur. I never meant out to set out to be one. You know, you hear a lot of the entrepreneurial stories like, yeah, as a kid, you know, I was selling baseball cards and lemonade candy at the school I wasn't doing any of that shit um, <laughs> and, and as an example of how ferociously independent I am like I legally changed my full name and it wasn't even about like oh I had a Muslim name and now I'm not a Muslim that that had been true for years it was more just I didn't get to choose my name and I want to choose my own like and, mm. and to me it's ridiculous I didn't get to choose my own so if anything I would say it is like I've always had a very independent streak in me which is very weird because my parents are definitely not like that and I wouldn't say there's any really one in my family that was necessarily that ferociously like I'm living my life I don't care what you're doing uh, it's also very possible that uh, I love reading books and uh, wow that makes me sound so pretentious I love reading books unlike <laughs> other people no uh, I, I love reading and my favorite types of books are biographies and it's very possible that reading all these biographies kind of built a sense of mm. almost independent wonderment that yeah. almost everyone who's done something remarkable or has led an interesting life, um, they didn't really care what the expectations were. Uh, one of my favorite biographies to recommend is a book called Black Count. So Alexander Dumas, who wrote Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, which, by the way, is one of the greatest books of all time, um, he, his father uh, was uh, an important French Revolution general, and he was black or half black. And reading his biography about how the guy just kind of like lived his own life and he kind of got screwed at the end of it. He maybe he should have been a little bit more politically savvy, but he just lived his own life in those days. 
And even though France was not necessarily a big, you know, slave-owning country, with his association with Napoleon and the sugar plantations and all that kind of stuff, he was definitely very, very atypical. Um, and I always tell people that the way I try to live my life is, is the question I ask myself is, would I read my own memoirs? Mm. Right. If someone gave me a book of my own life, would I read and be like, oh, this guy lives an interesting life? Or would I be like, oh, this is such a bore? So I would <laughs> say like though, that component of, of reading about all these ferociously independent people, perhaps likely, instill this level of independence in myself, which has then led to me, you know, being like, yo, I'm religious, yo, I'm not, you know, let me do me and you do yourself and just kind of leave me alone uh, all at the same time. I love that. I love that. And I completely agree, by the way, about Count of Monte Cristo. It's one of my one of my all-time favorites, and I haven't oh, thought about it in forever. What a, what a book. A reminder. <laughs> Greatest revenge book of all time by a mile. Seriously. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I'm going to have to go and pick that back up again. Um, and secondly, sure. I, just, I love this idea of, would I read my own memoir? Mm-hmm. That's so much fun. Uh, yeah, I mean... It's- and I don't want to sound dickish, and, and I've definitely had this same, similar conversation with my friends, but uh, a lot of life is drudgery. Mm-hmm. Um, there is drudgery when you learn something new and exciting, and there's drudgery when you're doing something you do all the time. And I think drudgery in some ways is underrated. Uh, there's a level of character you build when you have to do something almost monotonous over and over again. Uh, it also affords you the chance to kind of get lost in your thoughts. I'm a big uh, believer in that. But I am also like, even if there's a heaven, if there's not a heaven, it's almost irrelevant where if we're put on this planet and let's say, let's just to simplify our intention or our purpose is to do good. You can definitely do good and have a lot of fun while you do it. There's no reason why you can't balance making a positive impact. And I would like to think I've had a pretty decent, solid positive impact with Cookie Off and all the other things I do and not be able to to, uh, enjoy your life. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that for me is that as an immigrant, all my relatives are in Pakistan and and India. And they would literally kill for the opportunities that I have here. Uh, as the easy, easiest example I give people is that YouTube was blocked in Pakistan until 2016. That's not that long ago. No, not and at all. So all these things that are afforded to me now from, you know, climb the sea and tower if you want, which is like 1800 steps, uh, go for a walk whenever the hell you want, go travel to here, you know, hike this. These are almost simpler things, but they're things that people would like can only dream of having the downtime of -hmm. having the financial means of having the access to do all these things. And for me, if I don't do that, it's almost um, disrespectful Mm -hmm. to all my relatives. Like I won the lottery that I was born to the right two set of humans that we ended up moving here. Like I said, all, almost all of my relatives in Pakistan are still living in Pakistan and India. As an example, there was a major like earthquake in Kashmir like eight years ago, or maybe 10 years ago now. And um, my uncle was living there and his house got destroyed, like annihilated. The man had nothing. There's nothing as FEMA, right? There's not like there's an abundance of money where people suddenly send money to this region that's been hit by a hurricane or a tornado or fires or anything like that. There's no like support system on a societal level that was taking care of him. No, we have to take care of him. And I'm not saying this in a bad way. I'm saying it was he had family. He had access to that. A lot of people don't. And right. so for me, living in the West and being like I was in uh, 
Palau a few months ago. Palau is this tiny, tiny Micronesian country that has like six flights a day and that's it. And they all seem to arrive at two in the morning. It's really kind of insane. Uh, <laughs> but they have the most amazing scuba diving there. And so we were there and we scuba dove like 12 times. And it was amazing. And like I could tell this to my relatives and they'd be like, first of all, what the hell is scuba diving? Second of all, you're telling me you paid money to go spend time underwater and you had to breathe <laughs> and it was kind of uncomfortable. Like what's wrong with you? But like that, that's kind of like a big part of that drives forward in this, right? What I read my own memoirs is, wow, the opportunity we have, especially in this day and age, yeah. especially as uh, a non-Caucasian, especially as a non-male from just even 70 years ago, 60 years ago, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable. And if we don't embrace it, like, oh, that's almost disrespectful to all the people who worked hard to put us in this position where we can do this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Sorry, that became a little bit of a spiel right there. No, oh my gosh, no, I'm I'm right there with you. And thinking about, you know, in my world as you know, I'm thinking about what, who is that to me? You know, I don't have the family in a different country. Who is it that I can hold, you know, in my own vision as I'm thinking about this? And it's a really short process for me because it's my kids. It's the idea of, you know, am, right. am I intentionally living my life in such a way that they see me do this and they know that they can go after their own dreams. And that in and of itself has changed everything about how I choose to live because I've got these two, you know, not only watching me, but now they're side by side and they're going after their own stuff. Like my my 17 year old has his own podcast. My 16 year old is writing a novel, you know, like it's amazing. (laughs) It's absolutely amazing to be able to take on these kinds of adventures together. Right. And how many 16 year olds would be writing novels 20 years ago? Right. Like, would they have had access to a computer or a typewriter or the downtime or the, in, or the information? Would they have known how to structure prose? Like, you know, however deep you want to get into any craft now, you can, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's like literally what, what your kids are doing is exactly exemplifying what I'm talking about. It's like they can. And so they do. And if they don't yeah. want to, that's fine too. But there's so many things that you can do now. Like I have a book right in um, – so I, I read like multiple books simultaneously. One of them is a book on rhetoric. One of them is a book uh, that's very popular right now, Salt, Fat, Acetate. Uh, it became a Netflix documentary on food. And the third book is called Buildings Don't Lie, Better Buildings by Understanding Basic Building Science. Like, this is the nerdiest thing I could possibly pull out. It's a 400-page <laughs> book, literally on, like, on, on the science behind buildings, heat transfer. Like, for example, I learned that if there's any building that's more than, was it 10 or 15 floors, um, like a condo, you need to have uh, repressurization systems, which is why I like the toilets work on the 40th floor. To me, that's endlessly fascinating. To someone else, absolutely the most boring thing in the world. And that's okay. <laughs> but I can go into this because I want to, right? I can, and so I do. And if you're not into it, that's fine. But there's a million other things I'm sure you can find that you're being into. So uh, anyway, sorry. That, yeah, that's kind of like what really, really, really drives me uh, as an individual is the possibilities of mm. doing the most insane things, the cookie off, the ice cream cone, all that stuff I do is because we can. And not right. to do would be such a waste of time and opportunity. Absolutely. I love this. Um, and I definitely have one more question for you, but uh, sorry for those of you right. who have not yet joined the, the email list. Um, you're going to have to do it to get that question because I want to talk to you about community and how you've been really intentional about creating that. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, like with the cookie off, with the dinners, with all these different things, this is a huge piece of what you do. Um, so I'm really looking forward to to getting your insight. Uh, so if you guys haven't joined us, join us on the email list. You'll see the link in the show notes, and then you'll get the uh, the private access for this as well. Saul, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's been awesome. 
It has been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. All right, we'll see you guys soon. Bye.